Hello and welcome to the FFS Show, a podcast from the fair about fact-checking and misinformation. My name is Sam Gonsalves. I'm one of your hosts and I'm here with my colleague Jasmine today. Hi, Jasmine. Hey, Sam. How's it going? Good. Welcome to the podcast. This is the first time that you've been on the FFS Show, is that right? Yeah, my maiden voyage. So, yeah. Well, good luck. Um, Now, the listener might have read some of what you wrote for the fair since you started working here, but tell us a little bit about you. Who are you? Where are you from? What are you interested in? Sure. So, uh, yeah, my name's Jasmine, technically, but everyone calls me Jazz. I'm from Hull originally, which is, of course, the greatest city in the UK, I'm afraid to say. I've got some stiff competition in Scotland. (laughs) Yes. In England, however, less so, but... (laughs) Well, yeah, I came into journalism in about 2017 and I've been mm-hmm. working on my brief ever since, which is equalities. So that's mainly to do with LGBT issues, housing and just general asylum issues as well or anything that can be perceived as an inequality. Great. It's, you know, it's been a, a, a few months since you've joined the ferret and yeah, I, I would recommend that the listener go over to thefairy.scot and look up some some of what you've written so far. There's lots of very fascinating stuff over there and on our newsletter as well. Uh, but today we're going to talk specifically about a fact check that you did last week. Um, and then after that, we'll go for uh, an interview segment, uh, which Jasmine was able to sit in and, and do the interview with me this week, which was really nice. Uh, we spoke to Carol Ewart from the Campaign for Freedom of Information in Scotland. But right now, uh, let's look at a fact check. The claim that I explored was about something that Brandon Lewis said, um, the Northern Ireland Secretary for Westminster, mm-hmm. and he's one of several cabinet ministers who said this, including the Prime Minister Boris Johnson himself, which is that employment is at a higher rate than it was pre-COVID. And strangely enough, on the same day that Brandon Lewis made this claim on BBC Breakfast, the Office of National Statistics released their latest employment figures uh, for the first quarter of 2022. Tell me a little bit about the process. Like, what? Um, so, once you saw this claim, what were the kind of statistics that you looked at, and, and what did the different sets of statistics say about this? So, employment figures in the UK are normally built um, through quarters. So, each you know three month periods four three month periods of of the 12 month year um so i clicked onto the statistics and there it actually has um a general percentage point rate of the employment rate across the uk mm-hmm. so in the case of december 2019 to february 2020 which is the first lot of statistics i looked at to compare yeah. to the present day um, that rate was estimated at 76.6%, which is actually a record high. Right. Uh, so we were in uh, pole position just before COVID kicked right, off. Right, right. And then when I looked at the overall figure, that's equivalent to 33.07 million people in employment. Uh-huh. Um, so, yeah, pretty, pretty impressive. But um, now when we look for the January to March period and when I looked at that report, I saw Uh that that figure was actually sitting at 75.7% between that time. 
So that makes the employment rate about 0.9% lower than that period uh, pre-COVID. So that also said that about 29.5 million people were in employment. So I didn't Uh have to do the maths for that. These uh, population statistics are already there and done for me. Um, And then from there, I, I, you know, basically took that original figure, subtracted that 29.5 million Uh and found that there were 504,000 less people employed now compared to pre-pandemic levels. Right, right. Um, And so ultimately the verdict was false uh on this claim i i always ask ali when we're talking about these of what was what was the process of of getting to false and not necessarily a, a mostly false or an ffs kind of conclusion at the end i think because the maths clearly point out where this stands um right. and when you even take into account caveats like I know that there might be a bit of confusion because there are 530,000 more payrolled employees than in February 2020. Sure. Actually, when that's included in the overall figure, there's still that 504,000 deficit. Right. So even if that's taken into account, all in all, over an annual picture, the levels are still 0.2% lower. So even if we were approaching that claim in good faith, as, as we should... And yeah. um, the, the math still doesn't stack up. So that's right. what pushes it into that unequivocally false territory. I see. That makes sense. And, and uh, since those statements have been made, has there been any uh, reaction of, of, of people looking at the numbers and kind of challenging the government on that assertion? Yeah, it's been really interesting, actually. So I know that Full Fact also did some work on this claim. Uh-huh. And uh, from there, it prompted Ed Humpherson, who's the Director General for Regulation, to get in touch with the government and actually point out that they need to stop repeatedly making this claim. So this right. claim was first made by Boris Johnson in October of, I believe it was 2021, during Prime Minister's questions. Yeah. So... Uh, Mr. Humpherson himself wrote that it was disappointing that some earlier statements made by the government had continued to refer to payroll employment. So that figure that might have thrown things off, but actually didn't, as if they're describing the total employment for the year, despite contact from our office and from other people. So Uh it has been noted, that's for sure. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, And this this was your first fact check for the fair. Did you enjoy putting it together? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> I interact with things like this. Um, yeah. It's really interesting to bring that to the ferret from my old role as well. So, yeah, yeah. absolutely. Well, let's move on to our interview segment of the show uh, where we spoke to Carol Ewart. And it was a really interesting chat. Did you, did you enjoy talking to her, uh, Jasmine? I did, absolutely. It was really fascinating to hear from the other side where people are fighting to uphold those FOI privileges because I think a lot of journalists can speak to banging their head against a brick wall when it takes so yeah. long to get a response back. Absolutely. And I think one of the reasons that it's really relevant to have this conversation this week is that on the 28th of May, we're coming up on the 20-year anniversary of the Freedom of Information Act Scotland. Uh, that means that in 2002, MSPs passed the act for the first time uh, here in the Scottish Parliament. Uh, I know there will be a couple of events celebrating it. There will be an event on the 26th in the Scottish Parliament itself. Um, and as we remember that this week, um, 
we thought it would be really appropriate to have a conversation with Carol, understand the history of uh, freedom of information, but also look into uh, its current challenges and uh, what's, what we can do to get involved and to understand it better. Uh, we'll have a brief conversation there, and then we'll see you at the back end of the show. Hello, I am Carol Yurt and I am the convener of the Campaign for Freedom of Information in Scotland. Um, we were set up in 1984, no coincidence there. Um, it was all about George Orwell and about official secrecy and how opening up government should be a right as well as a duty. Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, just as a, as a background, if someone is listening to the podcast and has no idea of exactly what the freedom of information is, can you tell me a little bit about what it is in practice? Like, how does that work? So there are a variety of components to freedom of information. Um, you know, it is a catchy term, but people also use terms such as access to information. Right. Uh, they also talk about open government, transparent government. But if you look at it in human rights law, it's pretty clear. Um, in order for people to be uh, expressing themselves, forming an opinion... They have the right to receive and impart information and ideas. And then that leads to their better decision-making. And the expectation is it's better decision-making by government because they're receiving and imparting information and ideas. So it is the concepts about access to information. It's about open government. It's about enabling people to exercise their human right to form an opinion. Yeah. And, and it's very much about accountability. So openness, transparency, accountability, scrutiny, democratic participation, community empowerment, all of these go together. And I wanted to ask you, Carol, a little bit about how freedom of information law actually came into action, because uh, I know you are fast approaching, well, Scotland at large is fast approaching the 20th anniversary of the legislation. So freedom of information is comparatively new to Scotland. Um, if you look at countries such as Sweden, their first access to information law um, as a way of good government, dates from 1766. So they have a much different cultural tradition. And other countries such as France, um, you know, with the revolution in 1789 and a Bill of Rights, um, you know, that's a different culture and approach to information. And of course, the 20th century in the UK was really dominated by official secrecy and how that it was always about protecting the secrets of the state rather right. than opening up the government. But interestingly enough, um, in the 1980s, Mrs Thatcher was keen to open up lo local government. So she introduced, you could say, the first kind of access to information rules around local government. Um, right. But it wasn't until uh, the Scottish Parliament and, uh, and everything that went with that, because there was a UK Labour government elected yeah. and there was a UK Freedom of Information Act, and of course that still applies in Scotland in respect uh -huh. of reserved matters. And it was in 2002 that Scotland got its own Freedom of Information Act, um, and that of course relates to devolved matters such as well, the Scottish Government, education, um, local authorities, health, yeah. prisons. Um, and of course the other thing that has developed alongside this is the obligation in the UK to adopt the environmental information regulations as well. So that right. there's parallel 
um, legal frameworks operating, access to environmental information, as well as your right to access information on absolutely everything else, or nearly everything else. So we often talk about misinformation uh, on the podcast, and, and you mentioned this idea that, that FOI is about keeping the government open and, and, and transparent. Do you think it, it is one of the tools to to combat misinformation or the rise of misinformation in the recent years? Has Is, is FOI one of those tools to kind of um, keep misinformation at bay, in a sense? Yes. So there are different levels to all of this. Um, you know, the, the Scottish government has a national performance framework and it's supposed to give effect to the Sustainable Development Goals. And interestingly, in the SDGs, Transparent and Accountable Institutions, 16.6, um, are there. So, you know, they have that duty. The uh-huh. Scottish Government has also signed up globally to this in Open Government Partnership, OGP, which right. operates quite independently of FOI too. Mm-hmm. Um, and they're supposed to be much more open and transparent. So FOI is part of that um, patchwork. But what makes it strong and robust is the enforceable right, because it's not um, a benevolence, it's a requirement, a legal requirement to abide by the law. And so actually, freedom of information isn't important because it introduced the right, the Uh reason it's absolutely important and has caused a seismic change is because of the duty to enforce. So OGP, you know, that's a voluntary scheme, Mm. um, but freedom of information is obligatory an obligation to provide the information requested as long as it doesn't fulfil one of the numerous exemptions. And the other key part of this kind of patchwork is whistleblowing, because whistleblowing um, can often reveal information that you didn't know existed under FOI. Um, So, you know, there's lots of things operating here. And of course, human rights law, because Article 10 of the European Convention on Human Rights, which has given domestic effect in the Human Rights Act, um, and also very much part of the architecture of the Scotland Act. Article 10 is the right to form an opinion by receiving and imparting information and ideas. So that's one of the big ways to um, contradict fake news, misinformation. Carol, for you and your opinion, why is the Scottish Government dragging its feet on FOI? There is a very good question. I, I am perplexed, absolutely perplexed. And this goes to the core of the Scottish Parliament, you know, on the 21st of June 2017, MSPs voted unanimously for post-legislative scrutiny of FOISA, Freedom of Information Scotland Act. That then happened in 2019, the Public Audit and Post-Legislative Scrutiny Committee took evidence. You know, I think journalists from the Ferret were involved in that too, submitting evidence from practice and experience. Uh, They took written evidence, oral evidence, and they produced a really substantial report. It was finished in March 2020, but because of COVID, publication was delayed until May 2020. And they were absolutely clear. It's overdue for reform. You need to reform in a number of ways, but also you need to consult so that we get it right, because the committee was aware um, and that maybe they hadn't captured everything. And there was lots of ideas around how to not just close the legal legal loopholes that we were aware of because we've seen FOISA operating, but because it needs to be modernised, it needs to look at the best practice in other countries. Um, So there is a lot of work to be done. It's maybe an overhaul rather than a reform that's needed. Um, Scottish Government wrote to the committee and said, yeah, we'll get back to you on the terms of the report. 
And they wrote to the committee in February 2021 and said, yes, we will consult, but we're still not persuaded if reform is needed. So instead of the consultation being about how to reform, it's still going to be about if. And so what they've successfully managed to do since February 2021 is delay, delay, delay. We were promised a consultation document in the autumn of last year. Then at the beginning of this year, we've still not seen it. So the so this this goes, however, to the core of the Parliament. You know, MSPs voted unanimously on the twenty first of June, twenty seventeen. The committee did its work, produced its report in May twenty twenty. It's up to Parliament now to say to the Scottish Government, "Well, we've spoken. Our will is spoken. We will now hold you to account." So that that's that's essentially where we are as a small civil society organisation with a lot of enthusiasm. There is only so much we can do. So what we are doing is alerting MSPs, journalists, activists, and saying, you know, we, we need to push this along. What can um, organizations like the Ferret or other kind of journalistic organizations do to defend and enhance FOIM? And I guess part of that being keeping the government to account on reluctance to to cooperate kind of reluctance to to consult and, and all of those things what what can uh, journalist organizations do about that well just your very job you're doing it yeah. um, you yeah. know every day you might not realize it but you're making a huge difference to the amount sure. of information you're revealing your ability to analyze scrutinize access information that the public might not um, uh-huh. force it from different 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 designated bodies. You talked a little bit about uh, a good request being something simple and direct. Uh, I wonder if there is any good advice that you could share uh, to to people who maybe don't have a lot of practice on how to write a good and robust uh, FOI query. So there's, there is a difference between the information that you're looking for and what information you're requesting. Uh-huh. So... People often write, well, this is what I want. This is the information I want. And what I always say to them is, but is that going to be the giving, going to give you the answer that you're looking for? Right. Can you give me an example of that? Well, yes, because people sometimes are looking for education statistics. And I say, well, is that actually going to tell you what you want to know? Because you want to know about the performance of your school in terms of what the achievements are. Or are you looking at staff level, staff ratios? Um, how much money is spent on that school because that will influence how many what what the successes are. Yeah. So it is about thinking about what am I trying what what opinion am I trying to form by receiving this information, and that may change where where you seek the information from, and what information you're seeking because it could be that you're going to a regulator rather than the direct provider of the service. Right. Well, thank you so much for taking the time. It was a pleasure speaking to you today. Thank you. I've enjoyed chatting with journalists who are keen to help inform and enable the public to scrutinise. So yeah, that was really interesting to speak to Carol and hear from her perspective about why um, FOI law is so important. Um, Yeah. I didn't realise how much earlier Sweden and France had brought in the legislation. It's 
quite embarrassing comparison. I know, yeah. It's it's such an interesting, you know, you, we usually talk about freedom of information in a kind of national context and I really hadn't thought about it in other countries and yeah, that would be a really interested, interesting research to to do of like, where is it at all over the world, you know, and yeah, at what stages are people in? Because that's, yeah, it's really interesting stuff. Mm, 100%. I'm going to use my really elementary Swedish to have a bit of a dig and see what's around. <laughs> that's great. We should all go to whatever, like, slightly uncomfortable second languages we get we have and uh, <laughs> try, try to figure this out. Um, yeah, that was brilliant. And thanks to Carol for, for coming along and chatting to us. So this is it for the FFS show this week. Uh, we'll be back in a couple of weeks. I think Ali will be back then. Maybe Jazz and I will have, you know, moved enough puzzle pieces so that we'll take over the podcast at that point. I don't know. It's a power play. Maybe we'll make a power play in the fair. Who knows? Um, Nick and my overlord plan as we speak. That's right. <laughs> that's right. Uh, between now and then, if you would like to submit a fact for us to check on the podcast, you can do that. You just have to go to checkmyfact.paperform.co. Uh, and you can submit a few a few details about what you want us to check, and, and we might be able to get back to you on that. Um, or you can just go to social.theferret.scot, where you can find uh, basically everything, all our social media, our website, our most recent investigations and fact checks, uh, emails for for me, for Ali, for Jazz, for, for, for the whole team, and, and specific things if you want to, to tip an investigation or if you want to uh, suggest uh, uh, an area that we should be looking into. I should also say that, that we're right now running a consultation with our members about what we should be investigating next at the fair. So we're asking our members, if we were to do a series of investigations later this year, what would you like us to write about? Um, and the results have been fascinating. So if you'd like to become a member of the fair, uh, you still have time to join and tell us what to do next. So yeah, it's a pretty exciting time. I think lots of things uh, germinating and growing um, that I'm very excited about. Also, if you're a member of the Ferret, I think this is worth saying in case you don't know, uh, we have online courses uh, on freedom of information requests. We actually have a, a couple of resources. If you're a member that you can go onto our website, uh, go to your account and you will find uh, a couple of resources on how to write uh, a freedom of information request. Um, we also deliver those trainings. So if you are uh, part of a group that, that wants to have a concession or an afternoon uh, training on how to write a freedom of information request, then please let us know and we can, uh, we can maybe organize some kind of event together. Uh, we'd love to partner with anyone uh, who wants to look more into this. Jess, how was your first experience of the podcast? Have you survived? I've survived. I just hope I've not put too many people off for next time. <laughs> Can you imagine? Ali goes away for one week and then the two of us just destroy the podcast. Like, What's <laughs> <laughs> my luck? <laughs> <laughs> hopefully, yes. Hopefully there'll still be a podcast when, when Ali comes back. Um, so yeah, we will see you all in a couple of weeks and thank you for listening. Bye for now. Bye.